What a joy it is to be able to worship the Lord by looking into His infallible, inspired, authoritative, all-sufficient Word. Will you take your Bibles and turn to John 17 this morning? I would like to finish what I began last week regarding our Lord's prayer of intercession And we will look basically at the first ten verses, but some other verses as well. Before we look at this, may I say that the very basis of our faith was summarized by that brilliant angel who sat upon the stone that had been rolled away from Jesus' sepulcher. The one that spoke to the astonished women saying, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Dear friends, our Savior has said many other things as well that will likewise come to fruition. So indeed, we worship this morning a risen Savior, the one who bore the sins of all who believe in him in his very body. Therefore, we have the hope of salvation because of Christ. And it is this amazing event, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christians around the world are celebrating today. So I pray that you have come to worship the risen, and I might say the returning Redeemer. Because of the infinite chasm between the glory of the Son of God And the mere nothingness of we, his rebellious creatures. His condescension on our behalf is perhaps the most glorious of all his acts. That he would veil the glory of his divine nature by taking on ours is a mystery beyond our ability to even comprehend. Try explaining the incarnation of Christ to your children. But then to bear our sins in his body, that we might have his righteousness, that's even more incomprehensible. Moreover, he has promised to come again in the same way that he departed. You will remember, according to the two angels that spoke to the astonished disciples when they were watching him ascending into heaven in the clouds of glory 40 days after his resurrection, they said this in Acts 1.11, This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Indeed, one day the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will return again to the Mount of Olives, Physically, in human form, publicly, in clouds of glory. He's not going to come as some spirit. He will come in physical form, not as a helpless babe, not humble and lowly, not as a savior to seek and to save, not as a lamb that would be led to slaughter, but as king of kings and lord of lords. Dear friends, this has been a predetermined plan by a sovereign God from the beginning. And neither man nor devil can thwart what God has ordained. 
So we're not here today to hunt Easter eggs. I didn't know bunnies laid, laid eggs anyway. I, I was confused about all of that. But we're not here to hunt Easter eggs, but rather to celebrate the pearl of great price that we have found in Christ. So I trust you will join me to this end. Last week we began by making our way into the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. And then, as you will recall, Jesus left that room with them. He made his way down through the Cadron Valley to the lower reaches of the Mount of Olives. And I want you to join me now as we go back with him and with them in the darkness of that night. In John 17, Jesus is now making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where his anguish of soul over the cup that he is about to drink would be so excruciating that he would actually sweat drops of blood in anticipation of it. Yet with all this awaiting him, our selfless Savior pauses to pray for his disciples, to pray out loud so they can hear him, so it could be recorded, so we can hear it today. Disciples who were dismayed at what was happening, unimaginably disappointed. They couldn't understand all of this dying stuff. They thought that he was going to establish his kingdom. And as their great high priest, he now intercedes on their behalf and ultimately on our behalf, entrusting them to the Father's care upon his departure. And you will recall, as we looked at last week, one of the things that weighed heavy on the heart of our Savior is recorded in verse 3. He's praying that they may know you, Father, the only one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He tells us there that that is the very essence of eternal life, knowing the true God. And he's praying that right now, dear friends, for each of us, as he continues to intercede on our behalf, that each of us might have an ever-deepening intimacy and relationship and fellowship with the living God. Should this not also be the priority of our prayers and the priority of our life. And likewise, you will recall in verse 13, he says, but but now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world. In other words, I'm saying these things out loud so, so they can hear me, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. What an amazing statement. He's letting us hear this prayer so that we might know that he's continuing to intercede on our behalf. Why? So that we may have his joy made full in ourselves. To know that the burden of our Savior is this, as he goes to the cross, he wants us to experience that soul-satisfying joy that he experiences in the context of his relationship with the triune Godhead. We know that we experience that joy when we do the will of the Father as he did and therefore abide in Christ. So here in John 17, Jesus' ministry is now moving from instruction to intercession. 
Here he bears the burdens and he bears the needs of all those whom the Father had given him and brings all of us before the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. This prayer is one of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture because here we are allowed access into the holy of holies of inner Trinitarian communication. And here we glean many profound theological insights that help us understand that God has decreed a plan that is four things. It is predetermined, it is personal, it is perfect, and it is preeminent. We looked at the first two last week. I'll review them in a moment, and we'll focus on the last two this morning. Having said that, let's go to our text, John 17, beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. As we examined last week, first of all, his plan was predetermined. Again, notice in verse 1, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Obviously, this was a predetermined hour, a set hour. And what hour is that? It is the hour that decreed hour of redemptive history where the Son of God would offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. That hour when he would conquer sin and death for all who place their trust in him. That hour when he would be, according to Peter's words in Acts 2, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That hour when the Father would glorify the Son and the Son would glorify the Father. So obviously he speaks of a predetermined plan of mutual glorification, but also you will recall it was a personal plan, number two, one that includes sovereign grace being set upon specific individuals. Certainly that included his disciples in verse 6. He describes them as the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. But also, if we look down in verse 20, he says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. 
So this expands to all believers. And even in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Indeed, this plan includes specific persons. Scripture reveals that in eternity past, God ordained a plan to demonstrate his infinite love to his son, whereby he chose for his son a bride. He chose them by name. He recorded them in a book of life. An elect group of sinners that would be hostile to him. That would be in desperate need of forgiveness and transforming grace. A vast multitude of humanity pledged to the Son as a gift of the Father's love. A pledge that would be sealed by the Holy Spirit. And in time through the miracle of salvation, the Father would irresistibly compel each sinner to voluntarily exercise his will and repent of his sins and believe on the Son. But central to this whole plan of inter-Trinitarian love was the Son's death. He had to be the perfect substitute for each specific sinner whose name had been written in the book of life in order for them to be reconciled to a holy God. The ones to which Jesus refers in verse 6 and verse 24 as those whom the Father hast given me, whom thou hast given me. So as we examined last week, his atonement was not an act that made salvation a possibility for God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe. No, it was an actual substitution that endured the penalty of sin in the place of specific sinners chosen by God in eternity past. It ensured that they would indeed be brought to saving faith. Dear friends, there was power and there is power in the cross. There was a profound transaction that took place at the cross between God and his son. And contrary to much of what is being taught today in contemporary evangelicalism, dear friends, the biblical gospel presents a God who saves, not a God who enables man to save himself. God is not some impotent potentate desperately knocking at the door of our hearts, hoping that we will let him in. It's sad to see this kind of a pathetic God being presented in so many pulpits today. A God whose will is subject to the will of man. But the God of the Bible, dear friends, is an omnipotent God that actively draws his elect unto himself, those who Christ has redeemed by his very blood. And therefore, the cross actually, not potentially, not hypothetically, but it actually purchased the redemption for all whom the Father had given him in eternity past. And therefore, dear friends, our task in presenting the gospel is not to bring men to Christ, but to bring Christ to men. And when he is rightly proclaimed, our omnipotent and glorious God will awaken within them faith 
And in his great mercy, he will cause them to be born again. So here, Jesus' passionate prayer indicates a plan that was predetermined and it was personal. That was by way of review. Now let's look at the fact that it was also a perfect plan. Look at verse 4. And by the way, we see this in numerous ways, but I'll only have time to expound upon a couple this morning. In verse 4, he says, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. Again, here Jesus anticipates the cross and the perfect justice it would satisfy. This plan is perfect because, first of all, Christ's work accomplished the work the Father had sent him to do. He goes on to say this in verse 5. He says, and now, in other words, now that the specific time of my death, followed by my resurrection, ascension, and coronation has come, and now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. See, here he speaks of that estate prior to his earthly humiliation in which he emptied himself, as Paul describes in Philippians 2. Not that he emptied himself of his deity or even of his attributes, but of his independent use of them. And now Jesus looks beyond his humiliation and prays for his coronation, knowing that the final work of redemption would save countless millions who would in turn bring glory to the triune God for eternity. And just hours later, even though he was not physically at a point of death, he would cry out with a shout of triumph and say, It is finished! And the word says, And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which literally means he sent it away. You see, the recuperative powers of the unfallen body would have caused him to very quickly and fully recover. So he had to give up his spirit. This is in keeping with Jesus' earlier statement concerning his life when he said in John 10, verse 18, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, And I have authority to take it up again. Yes, dear friends, this was a perfect plan that that accomplished all that a sovereign God had predetermined to do. And it was for this reason he shouted, it is finished. And I might add that the resurrection is really proof of God's acceptance of his son's perfect sacrifice. You will recall in Romans 4 and verse 25, we read, He was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Delivered up is a judicial term in the original language referring to a criminal being given over to his punishment. And so what he's saying here is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God was delivered up to the sentence of death because of our transgressions. An amazing thought. And then he was raised up to provide our, or provide, I should say, the justification before God that we could never attain by our own power or by our own merit. 
And so his resurrection was confirmation that God accepted the Son's sacrifice, one by which all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are declared righteous because of his imputed righteousness. And this is an amazing validation of the absolute perfection of this predetermined plan. Think about it. The law of the Lord, we are told in Psalm 19, is perfect, right? It is perfect, but it could not save sinful man because we could never keep it. So the Son of God had to come to do, as Paul said in Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do. Moreover, if you think about it, the demands of the law could not be relaxed in any way to accommodate the weakness of man. Psalm 89, verse 14, we read, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. And so it was necessary for God to devise a plan to save sinners without any relaxation of the law. And herein is the very heart of the gospel, dear friends. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, paid in full the penalty for our sin on the cross of Calvary. Galatians 3 and verse 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. But he realized that his death did more than save sinners. It also declared the glory of God. Kind of an amazing thought, isn't it? Because when we think of the cross, typically all we think of is the shame, the humiliation. So how is the glory of God manifested in the cross? Dear friends, think of this. While Jesus hung upon that cross, we were able to see the mercy and the love and the justice and the righteousness and the holiness of God. There he maintained the unalterable standards of his law while at the same time saving sinners who were guilty of breaking it. My friend, if you want to know about the character of God, behold the cross. And there you will see him in all of his glory. For this reason we see the glorious perfection of the cross. It was a perfect plan devised by a perfect God. It was carried out by a perfect Savior who died for sinners who violated a perfect law that we might become perfect in him. The resurrection was proof of the Son's perfect sacrifice, whereby we are justified, whereby we are declared righteous in the sight of God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. We are no longer under the penalty of the law. We are now at peace with God, restored to his loving favor. Absolutely amazing. The great 19th century theologian, Charles Hodge summarized the profound theology of the resurrection in this way, quote, With a dead Savior, a Savior over whom death had triumphed and held captive, our justification would have been forever impossible. But, he went on to say, as it was necessary that the high priest under the old economy should not only slay the victim at the altar, but carry the blood into the most holy place and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, so it was necessary not only that our great high priest should suffer in the outer court, but that he should pass into heaven to present his righteousness before God for our justification. Both, therefore, 
as the evidence of the acceptance of his satisfaction on our behalf and as a necessary step to secure the application of the merits of his sacrifice, the resurrection of Christ was absolutely essential even for our justification. Amazing statement. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. Whereas once we stood condemned, we now stand acquitted. Whereas he once would now not allow us to to enter into his presence, he now summons us into his presence with outstretched arms. All because of Christ. All because Jesus, our faithful high priest, suffered and died and passed into heaven to present his righteousness before God so that we could be declared righteous. I mean, it is absolutely astounding. And here Jesus prays for this predetermined, personal, and perfect plan to finally be completed. Notice verse 5, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And for this to happen, he must go to the cross, then he must go to the grave, present his righteousness before God on our behalf, and then be resurrected and ascended back to the Father and be coronated as King of kings and Lord of lords. May I remind you of another aspect of the perfection of this plan. What happened in the temple when Jesus was crucified? Well, the answer is found in Matthew 7, verse 52. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this was a massive veil, about six inches thick with magnificent embroidery. In fact, it required 200 men to remove it periodically for cleaning. Think about this. You will remember in the Old Testament, Yahweh was unapproachable. You could not get near him. No one could come into his presence. So a veil separated the sinful people from their God and the Holy of Holies. But now the veil has been rent. It's been torn in two. The final atonement has been made. As Hebrews 2.17 says, the merciful and faithful high priest became the propitiation, that is, the satisfaction, the appeasement of the sins of the people, satisfying the wrath of God. Therefore, according to Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore draw near with what? With confidence. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Folks, this was unheard of prior to this. You will recall the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 and verse 1 and 2. He says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, now we have access to God through Christ, and now we stand in grace. We are permanently secured by the Holy Spirit in the position of eternal grace. This is unbelievable. This kind of intimacy was unthinkable prior to this. It's amazing that we no longer fear God with some kind of a, of a, of a terrifying angst, but rather we can now approach Him as our Heavenly Father. I think of my little granddaughter as she approaches her papa. She has no fear of me, unless she's been real naughty. 
Likewise, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. He went on to say, for we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So dear friends, indeed, this is a perfect plan because Christ accomplished all the work that the Father had sent him to do. But secondly, it's perfect because it cannot be thwarted. We don't use that word a lot, but I like that word. It cannot be thwarted. Think of it. Every individual the Father has given to the Son, every person for whom Christ died, whose names has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, every single one of them are secured forever. And Jesus goes on to pray to that end in verses 9 through 16 and so forth. There, there he intercedes for the preservation of those whom the Father had given him. For example, in verse 9, he says, I ask on their behalf, not on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. Verse 10, all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And so this love gift of redeemed sinners that the Father is giving to the Son belongs to both of them. And you might recall previously in John 10, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus had pictured his bride as those being held in the Father's hand, being kept, kept safe forever, never to be relinquished. So it is not the unsaved world that occupies the heart and the mind of the Savior as he goes to the cross. But those who already possess eternal life, most of whom had never been born again, including us. But he knew us. He created us. He knew us before we were ever born. In John 6, he has already established the fact in verse 37 that all that the Father has given me do actually come to him. He's describing how nothing can prevent that. And that each one who does come, according to verse 37, he says, I will certainly not cast out. Grammatically, in the original language, it's a double negative. And it makes the words e even more forceful, more emphatic. He's basically saying that, that each one who comes to me, will never under any set of circumstances be cast, never ever turned away. And then, as if that promise of security wasn't enough, Jesus adds in verse 39 of John 6, that this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. It referring to each person who has died but is part of the all. He will raise each person on the last day that time of the believer's future judgment. Verse 40, he went on to say, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Dear friends, here the Spirit of God is revealing to us a perfect, unalterable plan to save preserve and resurrect every single person who trusts in Christ as Savior. 
For my brethren, and maybe some of you are here today, who would argue that once saved, can, that someone who is truly born again, is truly saved, can lose their salvation, I must humbly ask you, how can you read these texts and make that claim? How can you say that man is the final arbiter of salvation rather than God? Dear friends, man can no more lose his salvation than he can gain it. Romans 8 makes that so clear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and following, we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time unless you mess up. doesn't say that. At the end, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. Boy, if it said, unless you mess up, there wouldn't be much rejoicing. Amen. Dear friends, we are part of his plan. It is not our plan. Do you really think that, that man can opt out of his plan, that man can override God's sovereign plan? Do you really think that? Do you really believe that the securing work of the triune Godhead is insufficient to preserve you to the end? That mere man could thwart the decreed purposes of Almighty God? That Christ's work as mediator on our behalf is somehow deficient? That it is somehow ineffective? That the Holy Spirit's work can somehow be undone? That we can be untransformed? That we can be unborn again? That a new creation can revert back to the old. That, that somehow we can reverse being made partakers of the new nature. That we can overrule the Holy Spirit's promises to indwell us forever, to seal us for the day of redemption, to guarantee our future inheritance, to baptize us into union with Christ and with all other believers. Do you really think that all of this is ultimately contingent Upon you? I've heard people say many times, Oh, but I know so-and-so was saved, and then they renounced their faith. No, you thought you knew. You realize the disciples were absolutely clueless that Judas was who he really was. They were clueless. And yet Jesus said he was a devil from the beginning. Please understand, dear friends, those who profess Christ and then renounce him were liars from the beginning. They never knew Christ. 1 John 2, 19 speaks of that. And Judas was a great object lesson for the disciples. They had to learn that hypocrisy and self-deception within the ranks of Christendom is exceedingly dangerous and it is virtually impossible to see. I see this all the time on the backside, like you would see with Judas once he's exposed. When you learn that some believer was living a double life, how they had concealed their sin and their hypocrisy, self-deceived kind of chameleon Christians like Judas. Oh, they can look like the godly when they're around the godly, but you get them around people of the world, and all of a sudden, 
the chameleon blends in with them. But folks, God sees the heart, doesn't he? And it's for this reason that Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom or enter into the kingdom of heaven. But here's the person that will. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You see, doing the will of the Father is a matter of the heart, and no one can see that but an omniscient God. And when the heart is wicked, eventually the hypocrisy will be exposed, and people will apostatize, proving that they were never born again. Because, dear friends, truth and time walk hand in hand. But make no mistake, every individual that the Father has given to the Son, every person for whom Christ died, whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, every single one of them will be secured forever. That is God's promise, because God's plan was perfectly accomplished by Christ upon the cross, and it cannot be thwarted by man or by devil. And it's for our preservation in the world that Jesus prays to his father on his way to the cross. Look at verse 11. He says, and I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. In other words, Father, they're they're going to be left in enemy territory here. Plus, their flesh will tend to lead them astray. By the way, in just a few hours, Peter is going to deny the Lord three times. So, Father, protect them, preserve them according to our predetermined, personal, and perfect plan. But finally, it is also a preeminent plan. All other plans of man and Satan are doomed, but God's plan is excellent. It is unsurpassed, it is unrivaled, it is unparalleled because it glorifies the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and the consummator of all things, the one God, the triune God, who is the very essence of glory. And this is, of course, what captivated the Savior's heart as he prayed for his disciples on that solemn night. Notice again, verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son, that thy son that the Son may glorify thee. Verse 5, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father. Verse 22, And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Glory, glory, glory. You see this all through John's Gospel. This is one of the recurring themes in John's Gospel. In fact, it occurs 41 times, more than all of the other Gospels together. Jesus is concerned about his glory and the Father's glory glory. To glorify one is to glorify the other. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the glory to which he refers is the indescribable manifestation of the character of God in his works and in his word and in his people. Jesus is so concerned about this. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term for glory comes from a root that means heavy. Or weighty. It carried the idea of the, of the heaviness of something connected to, to worthiness. Like we, we would say something is worth its weight in gold or whatever. 
and if it, it was often used in a figurative sense to to express um, a person that was that was impressive or a worthy person. And in the New Testament, uh, the term doxa, we get our word doxology from that. Uh, in fact, that's how the Septuagint translated the, the Hebrew in the Old Testament. And that term refers to, to that which shines, uh, to radiance or to the radiating of the glory of God. Remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6. He saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ, high and lifted up and lofty. And it was so overwhelming that it caused him to say, woe is me. I am undone. And so, friends, here Jesus is praying that his disciples and all of us will see clearly the essential nature of God in his actions, in his work, in his people, and that we would be awestruck with the magnificence of who the Lord really is. This is what weighs heavy on the Savior's heart. And sadly, this is hardly the kind of God that is worshipped today. In many churches, he is not weighty with glory, but he is kind of light and fluffy. I remember being at a, I guess you would call it, it was, it was, it was billed as a pastor's conference probably about 15 years ago up in Chicago. And I remember some young man with some mega church got up and he started talking about a Jesus that I didn't know. And I remember when he said Jesus was the original party animal. I got up to leave and I saw many others as well. Folks, it is the glory of God that's a priority in Jesus' heart at this time. I hope it is with you. Jesus' glory was veiled by the human by human flesh. And we know biblically that at times it broke through a little bit. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, it, it broke through and it shone like, like the sun. It was terrifying. Remember when the angry mob came to arrest Jesus in the garden? And he asked them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am ego me." He used the covenant name of God, the title he used to describe himself in John 8:58, where he told the unbelieving Jews, before Abraham was born, I am. He referred to himself in the present continuous tense. In other words, he referred to himself as the one that always has been and always will exist, a title of his self-existence. There has never been a time that he has not existed. The text says, when he said that to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is the glory that Jesus wants us to see. This is the glory that Jesus wants us to manifest in our lives. Beloved, don't miss this. Jesus is serious about his glory. Because when he's glorified, the Father is glorified. And the Spirit is glorified. He prays for the same glory that blinded Paul on the road to Damascus, for the glory he would later reveal to his servant John in Revelation 21. There, you will recall, he describes the splendor of the eternal state, the astonishing grandeur of of the new Jerusalem that will descend from heaven. And he says, I saw no temple in it, 
For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Beloved, do you share Christ's passion for the glory of God? Is this a priority in your prayer life? Does it break your heart to see the glory of Christ being robbed all over the globe? Henry Martin was a 19th century English missionary to the peoples of India and Persia. He understood this all too well. There was a story that he and others have described. He was the guest of a Muslim friend for dinner. And his host described for him a painting that he had seen where Jesus was bowing down to Muhammad. And Martin tells us what happened next, and I quote, I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy. And he said that his Muslim friend perceived that he was very distressed, and he asked him, why, why is that so offensive to him? And here's what Martin said, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonored. And his astonished guest said, I, I, I don't understand. And Martin said this, it is because I am one with Christ that I am thus dreadfully wounded. Oh, child of God, I hope this is the passion of your heart. To see the glory of Christ. I pray that this is the priority of your prayer life, the theme of your private worship, the song of your public praise, the motivating force in your evangelism, and the primary reason why you long to see Jesus face to face. May I encourage you today on this Resurrection Sunday, all of you who know and love Christ, to set aside some time and just meditate upon these great truths. Meditate upon these, these profound theological insights that emerge from the Word of God. That God has a plan and Jesus is praying for this plan. A plan that is predetermined. It is personal. It is perfect. It is preeminent. Folks, this is where history is headed. And we are part of it by God's grace. And I plead with those of you who really don't know God. Oh, you know about Him, but you really don't know Him. You may have been in church all your life. You may have walked an aisle. You may have made some profession of faith. But you do not know and love and serve and worship God in your heart. If that is you, I pray that you will come to know him today. Surely he has been presented to you today. So I plead with you as a minister of the gospel. Look to Christ See him in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his coronation, and in the unfathomable glory of his second coming. Look to Christ, cry out to Christ, just as you are. Confess your sin, acknowledge it before him, and cast yourself wholly upon his mercy, and he will grant you pardon and peace. He will give you a new heart, that it is no longer a natural 
enmity with him, but rather one that will joyfully submit to his lordship. And you will finally renounce any delusion that you are somehow the master of your own fate, that you are somehow good enough to make the cut, and instead you will know God. And when you know God, you will see yourself as you are. And by His grace, He will transform you and save you and give you eternal life so that one day you will enter into His presence blameless with great joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the truths that You give us in Your Word that speaks so directly to our heart. But Lord, we know that apart from the convicting work of the Spirit, these are just words. And so we cry out that you will do what only you can do. For those that do not know you, may today be the day that they do business with you, that they confess their sins and cast themselves upon your mercy. And for those of us who know and love you, may we know and love you even more as we long for you to come and take us unto yourself. We pray all of these things in the precious name of our risen Savior, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.